Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson and Thompson in Hollywood. And, you know, sometimes during this whole award season racket, we end up talking about the same things over and over again, trying to figure out how do we have a fresh angle on something. But this week, it's sort of the opposite challenge because we just have so much to go over. And one thing that we really want to do is share our top 10 list. But before we get to that, we have to sift through some pretty significant developments that happened this past week. Uh, on Monday, the NBR announced their winners. Then we had the Gothams on, on Monday as well, on Monday night. BR... And the third one, yeah, the New York Film Critics. Right, yeah. so the NBR gave Best Film to Mad Max, Fury Road. New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Carol, and Gotham's Awards Spotlight, Best Film. What does all of this mean for Oscar season? Tell us, Anton. Okay. Well, the National Board of Review really doesn't have much impact at all, especially it's a New York-based group. It's it's a lot of academics, people like Annette Insdorf. <laughs> but we don't really know who they all are. I love her, of course. <laughs> she's a Columbia professor, and she's a fluent French speaker, and she's a great moderator and interviewer. No, no, I love Annette. Great writer. But... Um, in other words, she happens to be someone I know in the group, whereas most of us don't know who they are. And people and, uh, give them they, a hard time. They say that their their choices are always sort of random or unexpected, but I don't know. I mean, Mad Max, it's nice to see Mad Max into the fold here. I mean, last well, it, year... Clearly, the students have, the, the younger elements have taken over students. this group. I mean, the, you, you have to... No, really, because it, 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 I, it's very clear to me that this is that the, the group has gotten younger in terms of its taste, and 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 so a lot of people who go, well, you know, this is terrible, you know, these are weird choices, are saying that only in terms of what they think the Oscar race is. And your point that you make all the time that these, this is about giving people reasons to look at other things is valid. I agree with that. Which is nice because. When you look at these three awards from this past week for Best Film, it does give you that sense of plurality, at least, that there are many different kinds of movies you can talk about at this time of year. And I was really glad to see New York Film Critics Circle went for Carol. I mean, we've talked before about my own feelings about Spotlight, not a movie that I dislike, but at the same time, I just... It's not my favorite movie of the year, and it's also not a movie that I would have liked to see celebrated twice in a week that would fuel a narrative about how it's the frontrunner for Best Picture rather than giving us a chance to talk about some other stuff. Well, I predicted that the New York film critics were going to go for Carol and for Son of Saul, and I'm very curious as to why Son of Saul ended up with First Time Filmmaker Award and not Foreign Film, and you went with a movie that was uh, in the Oscar race, even if it was technically released in 2015, for 2014. That was Timbuktu, the Sissako film. Which I loved, and it's worthy, but you threw it away, in effect, if you wanted it to have any impact, which you obviously didn't care. Well, what I find really unique about the conversation surrounding critics groups that I think you know this, and most people who do this stuff know this, but we still tend to fall into this this tendency to ascribe intention to the groups, even though the process that the awards are decided through doesn't really have sort of a single motive because it's a lot of people voting. And how many people are in the group? There's there's 38 members. Not everybody votes. Some people are inactive or or they they feel like they haven't seen enough movies. But most people do vote. And um, as a result, what you... What and you do happen- it live without proxies? There, there are proxies submitted. Um, so, okay. so people have the option to submit proxies if they can't be there. And uh, oftentimes there are several rounds of voting. They used to report the tallies. Uh, since then, there's been a law, bylaw created that, that uh, outlaws that. So we're not allowed to talk about these things and, and sort of publicize, you know, who came in second, who came in third, which ends up creating a lot of different sorts of conversations because when you know these things, you know there was a lot of support for this or that movie in second place. You know what, what was a close race, how that one movie that never would have a chance in an award season almost became a big contender and then dropped out in the third round or things like that. Something like Timbuktu, I think, definitely reflects not only some support for that movie, but also different kinds of critics' feelings about other movies in the conversation. Son of Saul. 
Obviously, it wasn't the consensus choice for best foreign language film, as it was at MBR, right? But you also now that we've identified it, we could call it MBR. Okay, right, Right. never. But you also have the the uh, the 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 award that Sinosal won for best first feature, and so if you're going to ascribe, you know, intention, it would be maybe. This th- there may have been people in the group who felt that one award was enough for that movie this year. And, you know, the Oscars don't have a Best First Feature award, so it was more about what kind of way can we get Son of Saul into this ceremony and does it need to get more than one prize? Okay, so what I do when I look at these things is, even if the National Board of Review or the New York Film Critics or the Gotham Awards, which are totally you know on the indie side of the equation, more like the indie spirits, um, if, these groups, even if they don't reflect the Academy... Um, they do reflect what the consensus titles tend to be and, and, and where there's division. And, uh, and so I, I do think that, that we can, I've been hearing this anyway from the people here in, in LA who are in the foreign branch who I run into all the time. Um, they, uh, you know, some Saul is, is admired passionately by some, Right. But but not by everyone. And that's and, been a narrative that's been around this movie ever since it premiered at Cannes. Yeah, even if yeah, if they exactly if they didn't put it into the New York Film Festival as a main selection, right? Right, right exactly. And we know that there's there is definitely some significant support for a movie like Mustang and, and the kind of conversation surrounding a very strong female centric cast could could maybe give it some leverage in, in that respect. But it, it hasn't been standing out in these awards so far no it's more of it's more of a crowd pleaser um but uh so the so obvious what's also interesting about um national board of review is it's actually closer to the imdb (laughs) top 10 which is based on uh rankings on the site and who which is a huge you know well-trafficked site you and i go there 10 times a day right? right um if not more um but it is it is uh mad max fury road and the martian are are on that list and and they're cropping and inside out is on that list so these are three films that are cropping up a lot and i would love to see mad max get on the best picture roster i mean it's not the consensus is not out on that one at all at this point but i'd like to see it taken more seriously my argument there is that the academy on both the martian and mad max appreciate the craft of those films and there's a lot of respect for them i i would be surprised if you could find a, a large group of people who doesn't who don't like those movies i think it's more that there are so many other kinds of possibilities and maybe on some level these are harder sells and also mad max in particular came out a, a while ago i mean it, that must be holding it back a little bit as well right i mean just because it's well it's their stuff. job it's the it's warner brothers uh, job you know it's to to remind people sure. remember remember the fox searchlight managed to get wes anderson's yeah grand Buda, Gu, budapest hotel 10 yes. nominations i mean that's that was ins- uh, i mean i may be misremembering that because no, it's it, so grand budapest hotel got got nine nominations yeah but it was perhaps an easier sell also than something like Mad Max Fury Road, which probably a lot of people didn't expect to be an awards contender until it came out and everybody really loved it and it did really well. Well, it is one of the best reviewed movies of the year. There's something to be remembered, right. you know, for Mad Max. It's not like it was a in the 70s. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a really well-reviewed movie. The thing about, yes, Grand Budapest, your, your, your point is well taken, is in the sweet spot of... A classy period, beautifully wrought. It's like Carol. That's one of the assets for Carol. That's why it's such a strong contender. Because you can see all the different groups in the, you know, the hair, makeup, the cinematography, the, you know, the writing and the, and the look and everything is all in there. That's, those are assets. Mad Max Fury Road is more of a B movie not to put too fine a point on it, and the actors are not considered to be front runners for acting nominations because there's no dialogue. <laughs> no. I mean, it's so, too bad because yeah. there are actually some pretty remarkable, expressive they're, performances. They're very good. There. Yeah, I know. But that's more about just the limitations of how award season works than anything else. 
mean, but uh, Carol gets a good, a nice big boost and uh, moves forward, and you start to see the look of silence picking up momentum as the sort of and Amy as well. The MBR went with Amy, and, the MBR went with and Amy. Uh, we we gave our prize to the three hour plus Frederick Wiseman documentary in Jackson Heights, which probably won't get nominated, but it, it's a nice way to kind of widen the field a little bit anyway. So there was all kinds of stuff there going on. There was Paul Dano winning uh, the Best Actor Award at the Gothams, which was a, a, another kind of charge to the race. Although- I think that helps him a lot, actually. And I, I think he has a fairly good shot of getting in there as long as, as there continues to be positive momentum for him. Meanwhile, the only presence of spotlight in the New York Film Critics Circle Awards was Michael Keaton for Best Actor, not Supporting Actor. Which I I'm wondering if that couldn't happen. That may happen. That may end up because I, I know that the national, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, you know, they're going to figure out which categories everybody goes in, and they may not follow what the publicists are trying to do. Well, the two areas where I personally would celebrate this movie would be screenplay and and Keaton's performance. When the movie first started getting reviewed, my my instant reaction was that I thought he was the best thing about it. So. If that is the way that a lot of people are relating to this movie, then it would make sense, especially given the traction he already has from the previous award season in Birdman, that this could keep building for on his behalf. But in the meantime, Spotlight taking on Best Film at the Gothams creates another perception that it remains the frontrunner for Best Picture. I believe that at this moment in time, that's where it is, along with The Martian. Um, but I'm not sure. I I I'm not sure that that. All right, it is a truth. It is a fact that the 20th Century Fox marketing and publicity department is now pushing three movies at the same time. Two of them opening at the same time. So they've got Joy, and they've got um, The Revenant, and they've got The Martian, which opened a while ago, and that's a problem. You know, they're that's, gonna have that's to a drop lot. One of them eventually. Right? No, no, they're not going to drop anything. They're going to do as well as they can for all three. But that doesn't mean that they're going to give all of them the best nurturing and well, that's what I mean. Uh, Something's going to get incredible. That's a different way of putting it. Yes, I so, mean it. It. I would argue that they've messed up on the Martian a little bit with that Golden Globes. Uh, snafu, for do you, example. Do, do you wonder, I mean, could The Martian have gained more momentum if it had been released earlier, like in the summertime? As no, I think what they did was brilliant. I think showing it in Toronto, getting all that buzz out of They weren't necessarily thinking of The Martian as an Oscar contender, I don't think, until it got such huge response. And then they responded themselves to to it and and Ridley Scott is a strong contender for best director as is George Miller I would argue but um you know we'll see it's interesting because Creed is coming up strong Sylvester Stallone got a supporting actor from MBR and that is um a mainstream movie and, and you have the a lot of mainstream studio movies sort of duking it out for that audience that those voters inside the academy right which makes you wonder what's going to happen to these kind of i don't want to say smaller but sort of you know more that's an advantage for them that gives them more room to maneuver so this actually that gives carol Carol. more room brooklyn more room room more room (laughs) you keep saying that i was wondering we should we should briefly address room because i am curious where this leaves that movie which has not done super well this past week well Brie Larson got best actress from MBR for whatever that's worth Um, Room is an interesting case because I would say that it 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 has done the people behind it uh, a 24 and 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 the publicity team behind it have pushed it and done everything right but uh, when you get to this stage you end up with the fact that it's a small, independent movie with, you know, great performances and a great screenplay. You know, who are the constituencies in the Academy that are going to support this movie? And you have the actors and the writers, pretty much. And so it doesn't mean that this, you know, they're putting a big fuss about the 
you know, the, the, the stage of the room that, that they're putting on displays so that, that you would see the actual set that they shot in and as a sort of novelty item. But it's hard to argue that, you know, you could have a movie like In the Bedroom get into the best picture race. It does happen, mm. but well, there's a lot a, going against year. it. In a year without Carol, I might have been supporting Room from my own personal sensibilities as kind of the the, the award season friendly contender worth rooting for because I, I like Carol a little bit more, but I think Room is maybe one of one of the harder sells in a lot of ways. When you really look at it, it's told from this child perspective. It's about this really bleak scenario and so forth. It and, should be rewarded for a lot of yeah. those things, and it may very well be, but I would put Brooklyn ahead of it because, again, like Carol, it has period, it has costumes, it has sets, it has cinematography. It's beautiful. Danish Girl has a, a lot of those advantages as well, and so that gives room a disadvantage. Right, which is so uh, frustrating because it's it's almost like it's being punished for... Certain it hasn't areas. happened yet. It may it could get, as I said, in the bedroom got in. It's a question of Possible how many. Yeah, <laughs> Brooklyn, Brooklyn. I would just say Brooklyn and Carol are are, are you know ahead of Room. Right. And Room Room could end up with a screenplay and an, a Best Actress nomination. That's just the way it is. So meanwhile, in the other categories, there were a few more updates. The documentary shortlist came out, mostly expected stuff. I think one of the the few omissions that stood out to me was the Wolfpack, although I never really assumed that one was a death. I never thought she was going to get in, honestly. I mean, I I had her in Contenders because it was so well regarded. But she says, you know what, that group is very insular the 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 branch that votes for documentaries they tend to to reward the inside track there and you know their own community they just yeah hang out together and so she's a little bit of an upstart newcomer yeah she has to find her place and somebody like joshua oppenheimer certainly has done that and so and i don't understand the resistance to amy berg i just don't i really like janice and, but uh, there was also Prophet's Prey. Prophet's I Prey. actually had some problems with Prophet's Prey myself. I understand why that didn't get in, but I don't understand why. Oh, Janice probably ran up against too many music movies. It's probably something like that. You have Amy. And, and Kurt Janice. Cobain didn't get in either. Yeah. And Brett Morgan's another guy who sometimes I think the Academy has, has issues with, although he's still kind of an insider. But it's true. I mean, Amy... I wonder if momentum has slowed a little bit for that movie just because of some of the other contenders in that field. But the next few weeks should should uh, complicate. Amy seems yeah, Amy seems to be a robust contender. For that. And by the way, fifteen is a lot more than five. <laughs> so you know where we end up with five is, I suspect, Amy Cartel Land, Look of Silence, Active, and. Uh, what happened to Miss Simone and Winter on Fire? That would be a guess. Well, don't forget Heart of a Dog made the short list, too. I was thrilled by that. Pretty neat. I mean, it's just, that's, that's one to really root for. It's such a great movie, and it's not even a traditional documentary in any sense. So. I was surprised that they did it, but again, I'll be surprised if they give it the top five. That's right. And I, I'll also be surprised if he named me Malala and Where to Invade Next make it to the oh, top yeah. five. Those are tough too. And I was thrilled that Maru got in. Uh, I, I love that movie. Right. So there, there is some good variety there in, in that sense. If you saw a lot of docs this year, there's plenty to celebrate. And then the other nomin- the other uh, update this year was or for, to, to the award season was uh, the Annie nominations, uh, which which have now come out. Speaking of a top five, there isn't that much to say there that's very interesting, except that inside. Out is still going to win everything, <laughs> and oh, that they man. had they didn't think of Anna Anomalisa as an, they added this independent category and then didn't make. I mean, I, I objected to the independent category at both the MBRs and the um, Annies because if you're going to do it, be consistent about what you're how you qualify something. And and Anomalisa was an independent; it was picked up by Paramount out of festivals. Yeah, but it's just, uh, this is the annoying thing about award season to me in a nutshell, which is that I wind up not wanting a movie that I like quite a bit to have this momentum that it has because there's something else that I think is just much more exciting and different. I mean, Inside Out is a great movie. Anomalisa is just, is 
definitely more exciting to me just because it it feel it feels like something fresh in a way that even even Inside Out can't touch because it was made outside the studio system in this very I, I know and and so it it, it, it anyway um, by the way I also like Sean the Sheep movies so the, the I love Sean like, the Sheep I love I saw it's the one I saw in Spanish <laughs> and it still worked it was okay and and Peanuts movie I have not seen so I can't really speak to the overall list here but uh it seems like a pretty good summation of the the movies in in animation that have no those are the contenders and i haven't seen the peanuts movie either it's an oversight and i will get there let's do our top 10 we're going to count down from the back we're going to start with number 10 and we're and i'm going to predict right now that there's one movie on eric's list that i still haven't seen and i'm going to be embarrassed and other movies among others probably but there's at least one i'll admit to being embarrassed about right and others that you find infuriating and and (laughs) artfully arcane eric that's what you're going to be giving us (laughs) in future memoir so as, as a disclaimer with these lists, there there are there are so many movies this year worth talking about. Some of which we're not even allowed to really talk about yet because of embargoes, and others that, for different kinds of reasons, I for my purposes of my own list, I'm, I'm folding into other categories. We have a huge critics poll that we're doing with performances and screenplay and best docs and so forth. What I do is I start keeping a list of movies that are released this year in January, and it keeps building up. I had around 55 on there at last count. So just as, as, a, as a means of, of introduction here, this top 10, I think, is basically accurate in terms of the movies that I would put as, as, as the ones closest to me, the ones that I feel strongest about that I keep coming back to. But there, there's a lot more where this came from. So it, it is by no means definitive in that sense. But, I had to uh, leave off some really favorite movies of the year too, and um, it, in favor of the ones decision. that I wanted to, you know, really wanted to make a, a point about. And I guess that's what it comes down to. Uh, yeah, I mean that curation ends up being really valuable because when you when you reach that point where you, where you've made those hard decisions, but you know that the decisions you have to make, you have this clean top ten list, and the ideal is that it really represents. What, what the biggest moments in, in the movies were for you in the year. And that that makes it stand outside of all of this other awards. I agree with that. We do. So, um, so who, goes, who does the first number 10? You Drum or me? Roll. I'll go. I'll do number <laughs> okay. 10. I like okay. being first. I feel very strongly that my number 10 should be a movie that I keep coming back to uh, in different kinds of ways because just it doesn't have to be number one to merit that slot, and so my number ten is Carol, a movie that I saw back in Cannes in, in May and was just stunned by uh, how beautifully wrought its emotions were uh, in ways that did not uh, distrust the audience's intelligence to to wrestle with the material. It had some terrific performances, but also it felt like a consolidation of what I've always loved in, in Todd Haynes' movies, which is this way of sort of wrapping your head around various elements of American society and seeing them in new ways. And I revisited the film when I presented it in Key West two weeks ago, and and I found that so many textures in the film were still unexplored to me. And so I I keep seeing new things about it, and that's my favorite kind of movie. And seeing a movie like this that that is also somewhat crossing over to mainstream awareness is, is what really excites me in American cinema. So in that sense, I also felt like it was a real triumph of, of kind of working the system. So that's my number 10. What's yours? I probably have that at number 11. It was one of the ones that I, I completely um, debated. I mean, I really felt pain when I didn't put it on my 10 best. So um, uh, I love Carol. I, I admire it. It's probably my favorite uh, Todd Haynes movie after uh, Safe. So, uh, but my 10 is Clouds of Sils Maria from Olivier Assayas, a Frenchman uh, working in English uh, in the Swiss Alps with the great Juliette Binoche and the great Kristen Stewart, who was revealed uh, as the actress I've always 
considered her to be in a, in an intelligent, well written, well acted, incredibly well directed movie. And it's a it's a duel of two great. Uh, uh, an older woman and a younger woman, uh, shifting roles, shifting allegiances, uh, the powerful actress and the younger assistant. And it, it's uh, got an all about Eve uh, dynamic to it in a way. Uh, but it's it's a it's a fascinating movie. And um, I, I hope everyone uh, gets to see it. And I was thrilled because I have been pushing Kristen Stewart as a supporting actress contender, found out that IFC was not backing her. And now that she has actually gotten a supporting actress nod, uh, I'm I'm delighted uh, that she uh, that from the New York Film Critics. I'm delighted. I was surprised by that, but I'm delighted, and I hope that uh, IFC gives her a shot. Yeah, it was nice that we were able to to work her in and remind people that this was in fact a 2015 release. I mean, I love. And she got story. a Caesar for yeah, it. She won. American yeah. interest to do so. There yeah. are many reasons to celebrate that movie. It's probably up there on my list somewhere, maybe up in the 20th or so. But um, yeah, terrific, terrific movie about uh, performance in particular and the way everybody kind of performs their way through life. Which leads me to my number nine, Heart of a Dog, in which Laurie Anderson, who is a terrific performance artist. Uh, puts on this really remarkable show of her life and the way that she relates to the world. Uh, it's this meditation on dealing with grief. It's this kind of absurdist tale of a dog that learns to play the piano. It's on some level a definite allegory for what she's going through, having recently lost Lou Reed. And uh, it's a diary film in the tradition of Chris Marker and very much attuned to the textures of that kind of cinema, uh, which we don't see enough of anymore. I, I just I find this movie to be so wise about the world, but also humble in the way that that uh, wisdom unfolds and uh, very unique in terms of how it tells that story. Made by a filmmaker in her late 60s who's only directed one other film before, concert film uh, which makes it a, a triumph on a whole other level as well. So. I couldn't agree more. I, I also debated putting that on my top 10 and I decided to say in this uh, broadcast that Heart of a Dog is my favorite documentary of the year. <laughs> it's the best documentary of the year but it's not on my list. My next movie, number nine, is 45 Years. Andrew Hayes, uh, he's a writer-director. He did Weekend. This is a great follow-up uh, uh, for me. Uh, it is uh, Court, Tom Courtney and Charlotte Rampling uh, about to celebrate their 45th wedding anniversary when uh, a big secret is revealed. And both actors are superb. It's about marriage. It's about trust. It's about the way that one piece of information can destroy years uh, of of trust. It's it's, it's extraordinary how the, how he he manages to use uh, these great actors and the, but also the silences and and the way that they interact over the course of this movie. So I hope Char- I hope they go, both get nominated. Yeah, it's a terrific actor showcase and also a movie filled with all these really nuanced surprises that you wouldn't expect. So even somebody who can't relate to that situation can get something out of it in that respect. Well, I'll switch gears for a minute here and talk about a movie in my number eight slot that uh, I wish got more attention, but it, it's one of those things where it's it's a tough sell on a number of different levels and yet important in more ways than one, and that's Jafar Panahi's Taxi, uh, a movie that initially was anticipated on some level as a documentary. It definitely is not that, really, but it's on some level playing with uh, documentary tradition. It's uh, Panahi, who cannot leave his country in Iran, driving a taxi around with hidden cameras and so forth, picking up his young niece, talking to different locals, and what you end up getting is this marvelously insular portrait of Iranian society and all these kind of frustrations that can't be fully expressed, but they're constantly in motion, literally, of course. But it's also surprisingly funny, because Panahi is just a terrific storyteller and also a great on-camera character. In some ways, it's like if Christopher Guest made something with you know, greater kind of social awareness to it, this might be the result. And uh, Kino and Lorber did a terrific job getting it out there to the best they could, but somebody needs to do a better job of helping Jafar Panahi get out of Iran because uh, the movies he's been making under, you know, the different kinds of conditions that have been forced on him have been incredibly innovative, but when you watch Taxi, you start to worry how much longer he's going to be able to pull it off. So I'm, I'm really glad he was able to do it with this one. 
I have that. Um, I, I, I've, I've hustled to get a copy of that. I haven't seen that yet. So I definitely uh, want to, to see that. My next one is uh, Tangerine. Um, uh, as promised, <laughs> it is on my 10 best list. It is an iPhone movie. Uh, Sean Baker did an amazing job of figuring out how to take these apps and, uh, on Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, you know, over the course of a day and a night, uh, tracking these two amazing transgender actresses who are playing, uh, prostitutes. Um, and they are, uh, Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor are just amazing and uh i i love this movie it has a humanity to it it's hilarious it moves it looks great it you don't know what's going to happen there's a lot of drama there's a lot of stuff about that world that i did not know and it helped me to understand it better actually in a way that i appreciated i'm so glad that you're still supporting tangerine after i've beaten it to death on this podcast week after week as, as, as a dark horse for best picture. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one to keep championing in that respect. But I'll go even further outside the box in that respect and, and plug Anomalisa, which, uh, as we were speaking about before, has been sort of hovering in the shadow of, of Inside Out in award season, but was also just a terrific discovery this fall when it surfaced uh, at a couple of different film festivals, Telluride in Toronto, and got this big deal with Paramount. But what I really love about this movie is that it's Charlie Kaufman kind of boiled down to some of his more sweeter, accessible elements, and yet at the same time, the stop-motion approach to the story liberates it from some of the more confining aspects. So it's not so much this grim portrait of a really sad guy, even though that's kind of what it's about. It's more getting inside that guy's headspace and trying to find something, if not optimistic, then at least more complex about the way that his emotions fluctuate. And I'd never seen anything like that in the animated medium before using the stop-motion approach. So it was just a really terrific kind of uh, renewal of of what Charlie Kaufman does so well. And, of course, he co-directed it with Duke Johnson, and, and they both deserve recognition for what they've done here with a really unique uh, piece of storytelling that people get a chance to check out at the end of the year. A lot of people have been trying to break, uh, you know, this family movie vice, you know, that that's on uh, animation. And this is the most successful to date uh, that's done that. And I applaud them. I love this movie. Um, my next one, number seven, I believe, is uh, The Diary of a Teenage Girl which broke at Sundance, and I was dazzled uh, by Mariel Heller, uh, you know, who was news to me. Uh, It was her first film as a feature director, and she wrote it based on a play that she put on a while ago, based on this graphic novel that she loved and and felt. uh, When she did the play, she was able, she was young enough to play the part, um, that was played by Belle Powley in the movie. I just think it's a completely successful uh, look at young teenage sexuality in a period, of course, uh, the 70s when it was more uh, possible to to, <laughs> to uh, break a lot of the taboos that, that are broken here. But uh, I love this movie uh, and I want to see more of uh, all of these people. It also showed Alexander Skarsgård in a way that, that uh, was revealing and uh and we will see more from both Pauli and uh heller in the future yeah it's always nice to have somebody come out of nowhere like that i mean it's similar to anomalisa in that sense that it's it's not a movie that i think anyone was eagerly anticipating unless you knew the graphic novel but there it is at the other end of the spectrum there are some filmmakers who we haven't heard from from for you know very long periods of time or had a reason to celebrate, and then all of a sudden there they come, you know, reminding us of why we liked them in the first place. That's the case with Mad Max Fury Road, which I felt, you know, I've always enjoyed George Miller. I even thought Happy Feet was a great sort of uh, examination of his skill and ability to deal with certain dark themes in brighter ways, and what Mad Max Fury Road confirmed was that those movies that he made back in the 80s were not just a fluke, that there is a serious skill to making this depraved wasteland not only visually exciting, but involving 
in in terms of its entire world, and he really does create this complex world uh, that challenges the conventions of how uh, action movies are made today, and slows the action down so we can actually see what's happening, and uh, it's just, everybody's responded to this movie because it's what we want our entertainment to be like, and I'm just... I'm so glad that at least one studio movie made this year had that kind of liberty to to be that way. I'm delighted to hear you say that, as you will soon discover. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) My uh, my number six is Steve Jobs. Um, I think that even though it's perceived to be sort of a mainstream studio movie, um, the box office shows that, in fact, it's not. Um, It is a very uh, daring and uh, brazen uh, approach to uh, a biopic on the part of Aaron Sorkin, who, by the way, is a playwright. He comes from the theater. He figured out a way to put a lot of highly charged uh, people confronting each other in, in small rooms um, in three acts. And he, he did it. And I think the actors just totally delivered. And so did Danny Boyle and everybody involved. And I applaud Steve Jobs as one of the best movies of the year. Well, here comes the part of my list where I start really pushing to, uh, unkind you know sort of the terrain that excites me most and and also probably frustrates people who don't get a chance to see these movies or or, you know for one reason or another they weren't on their radar my number five is buzzard uh the second film from joel petrikis it's really fantastic it's this bizarre kind of deranged office satire about a guy who steals money uh runs around with uh Freddy Krueger gloves and and just kind of doesn't take life seriously, but at the same time, uh, he's frantic because he's this young young fellow who who just kind of wants to find enough money to survive. And every step of the way, it's this kind of bizarre comedy of errors where things go awry for him until it arrives at a very bleak and sort of surreal conclusion that reminded me on a certain level of uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours because it's it's got this Kafkaesque element to where you're in this guy's world for so long and the, and the kind of surreal developments keep piling up until you wonder if anything is actually happening. But I, it felt very contemporary to me, uh, almost a kind of post-recession malaise of sorts that you're seeing unfold through the lens of one character. So I hope people check it out. It's not for everyone, obviously, but it's uh, as, as a black comedy, I think it really hits all the right beats. I, uh, my number five is uh, Spotlight, um, and I remain um, dazzled again by the uh, extraordinary discipline, really, that I consider uh, Tom McCarthy to have brought to this entire um, proceeding. It was not the normal approach to include every single one of the people who was real, you know, in this drama of the Boston Globe and their revelations about the Catholic Church and the pedophiles. It was not the usual Hollywood approach at all. And it's um, important to remember that this is an independent film that was uh, nurtured and uh, financed by Open Road. And... um, and there, it breaks a lot of the rules of how you're supposed to do this, and and it's it's interesting that the that the people involved are are pr- promoting the movie as an ensemble, you know, not trying to compete with each other, and also because they're playing real people, and so they've been taking the real people, uh, the editors and the and the reporters on the road with them, and and uh, I have to say when I when I actually met them, I was stunned at how closely the actors had um, approximated them and had, had, had channeled them. So it's, it's, this is an unusual uh, movie in many ways, and I think uh, everyone involved uh, hit, hit the right notes on it. Well, speaking of playing real characters, I don't think you get closer to that in any other movie released this year than the Safdie Brothers' Heaven Knows What, this really dynamic 
visceral portrait of junkies on the streets of New York. To me, it, it, it's Panic in Needle and Park and its kids. It's, it's in the tradition of those kinds of films that are pr- producing, you know, very edgy but also honest windows into uh, life on the streets among young people and Ariel Holmes who plays this uh, main actress and just a really frantic character, the terrific discovery. Caleb Landry Jones does an amazing job opposite her, uh, playing a version of her real-life boyfriend who actually OD'd in this past year. And uh, the Safties have just come such a long way since uh, their earlier films, The Pleasure of Being Robbed and, and Daddy Longlegs, which I, I really like, but those are sort of light-on-their-feet New York comedies. And this is a, a grim but also just deeply involving portrait of desperate people that I I know I'll, I'll never forget. I've seen it multiple times, and, and every time it just it stuns me, all the different textures to it and the way that these characters come alive on screen. So it was one of my uh, highlights of, of the New York Film Festival last fall, and I hope more people get a chance to see it. All righty then. Um, I am now moving into big studio land with The Martian, and I saw that in Toronto, and it knocks—it just knocked my thoughts off. Um, I think that Drew Goddard's screenplay is uh, astonishing, um, and because he took this wonky, very scientific, very technological uh, ebook thing that turned into Andy Weir's The Martian, turned into a real published book because it was such a success, and he fashioned a movie that was just as smart, and he doesn't talk down to the audience, and he allows a lot of humor, and then Matt Damon runs with that, so he's perfectly cast as this guy marooned on Mars, and Ridley Scott runs with the opportunity to create Mars in Jordan or on a soundstage and play with all of his toolkit, um, you know, visual effects and everything else. And so it's this magic um, moment that doesn't occur very often where everything fell into place perfectly. And it yielded a very entertaining mainstream movie that was also emotionally moving, that was also entertainingly funny and and gorgeously wrought. And so that's why I consider The Martian one of the best films of the year. It's very well put, and I don't want to negate any of that because I like that movie too, but as you move into studio land, I move further away from it with my number three pick, which is Horse Money, uh, Pedro <laughs> Costa's movie, which uh, I'm sure you've seen multiple times, Anne. <laughs> no, I'm, take, I'm making a little list of the movies <laughs> that I have not seen that I still have to check out. And I, and I love that element of advocacy, too, because when I can surprise somebody with a highly ranked, obscure movie, it only goes further towards the possibility of exposing people to the kind of movies that excite me. And, and this is totally my jam. I mean, Pedro Casa is a fascinating filmmaker who has for years worked in this low-income community in Fontanas in Portugal where he finds real-life characters and he constructs these dreamlike narratives around their lives. And there's been one recurring character, this guy Ventura, who's the, the, this uh, African immigrant who plays a version of himself in in uh, several movies but in horse money it, it really goes into an abstract feel it's almost like david lynch making an ethnographic film or something like that there's just there's there's music numbers you're not dreams. selling me <laughs> <laughs> all i'll say is that it's gorgeous maybe that'll help it's a, it's a beautiful look at a place that most of us have never been to, and it also deals with some really remarkable themes, colonialism and so forth, in ways that, again, I'd never seen before. And I think he's just, he's a filmmaker who keeps testing the, the boundaries of the medium, and, and I think that's worth citing here as well. I totally will see it, Eric. I, I, ta- I, I, I take it seriously. <laughs> I do. Um, my next is Inside Out. I, um, as much as I do admire Anomalisa very much, um, Inside Out, um, just because it's, you know, Disney Pixar and it looks great and it seems simple and it seems entertaining, um, the degree to which it was a difficult challenge and an original idea, I mean, my God, it changes the way we actually think about the mind and the brain and how they work. Um, and it's based on science. And Pete Docter just cannot be uh, applauded enough 
you know, for being willing to put it back a whole year to make it better, to figure out the right way to tell the story, to figure out because the trick was to take all that wonky science and 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 his original idea of taking the 11 year old girl the girl entering adolescence the you know what goes on in her mind you know and figure out the story the structure the internal workings of the mind the drama the ways to invite us in and as much as i respect and admire a lot of the movies that you champion, Eric, I will say that we we should give Hollywood credit sometimes for being able to create art that is so um, carefully crafted to appeal to many people and still functions at the level of art. That 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 is when they thread through the eye of a needle that's when they do that and it doesn't happen very often and this is one of the times that it happens well i don't want to necessarily push back against any of that but let's come back to tangerine for a second because that's my number two this is the sort of movie that would never be made at a studio for of course not of course not nor should it well, I think there are some arguments to be made for why this kind of movie is expanding uh, our awareness of, of certain possibilities that the studios aren't even able to try. Uh, what I like about Sean Baker's films and, and people who just just learning about him through Tangerine should go back and look at some of the others is that they're, they're using some familiar genre elements, but they're featuring types of characters that tend to be underrepresented. He made a movie about a Chinese delivery man. He made a movie about an African immigrant who sells uh, counterfeit purses in Chinatown, and now here's this kind of buddy comedy about transgender prostitutes in L.A. And I think they all work so well. Just they hit all these great beats. And I don't know if the studios will ever get to the point where they can support this kind of filmmaking, but certainly audiences should be aware that those options exist. And so that's why I rank it so highly on my list. By the way, I, th- I think the studios should be willing to give a filmmaker like Sean Baker uh, a big budget and 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 shoot and shoot this subject. And I'm, I think that they should be open to uh, innovative technology like shooting a movie on an iPhone. But the chances of them doing that anytime soon are pretty slim. Um, my next is uh, Mad Max, and we've we've discussed it at, at length, and uh, you know how I feel about it. Yeah, what I nice. will say, what I will say, uh, I was going to say one more thing, uh, just jumping on what you said before, basically, it's, it's what I find so impressive about Mad Max is, it, and it should be considered an, an independent film, honestly, because he owns it, the property, he took all the time that he wanted to, it came to him in a dream on an airplane, and he knew that the original Mad Maxes had been uh, ripped off and, and imitated over the past decades. And so he completely reinvented it, made it saturated colors, made it, uh, you know, reinvented the look and the, the vehicles and the costumes and, uh, and the world, uh, you know, as, a, as an outgrowth of the other. And as you said, used every skill that the 70-ish guy had in his possession to deliver it, you know, at a, at a level setting the bar higher you know i mean when you have a james cameron or you have a a george miller uh, they are making it difficult for their peers to compete with them and that's what it's all about well that's a great way of positioning in the number one slot i think the the idea of reinvention is is just so valuable because we're so used to this culture of sameness especially with movies where people bring so many expectations to the table to have somebody actually push against that and do something above and beyond the call of duty which look anybody could have made a, a subpar mad max movie i mean it's great to see somebody kind of go beyond the call of duty who actually created those conventions in the first place but the the reinvention that i want to celebrate in the number one slot is uh, Son of Saul, which completely reinvents what we consider to be a Holocaust movie. This uh, this concept that's unfortunately become something of a cliche over, over the decades, over multiple generations of filmmaking, really, and uh, has been solidified into something that we, we bring certain expectations to the table with. I think Son of Saul works around them rather beautifully, and in some ways 
criticizes them because it, it doesn't take anything for granted. It's a very grim portrait of death in the concentration camps, but at the same time, it invites you into the world of somebody who doesn't have that, that sort of burden of history. And as a result, you get this bracing psychological thriller that to me, as somebody who is you know, sort of overwhelmed with these kinds of stories and, and yet still has so much historical distance from them, I found it to be just a fre such a unique, fresh way to do this. And I think it's going to stand the test of time because it's just a terrific piece of filmmaking from a, a director who's just starting his career, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Well, in case you haven't used your powers of deduction based on all of our conversations, you and I, for all of our differences, have come up with the same number one movie. Son of Saul is mine as well. And uh, I, I thought you uh, expressed yourself beautifully just now. Here's the thing. The Holocaust has been done so many times. Um, and we, we sometimes can be forgiven maybe for, for going, oh, God, do I have to see another Holocaust movie? But, yes, we do have to see another Holocaust movie because it's – and we have to see them because we need to be reminded of, of what human beings are capable of and uh, at their worst. And um, this one came up with an entirely new way of telling that story. But what I found out when I talked to these guys, um, not only uh, Laszlo Nemes, but uh, Gira Rosick, the non-actor who stars in this movie, um, is that they are dead serious about it. Um, they steeped themselves incredibly deeply into this material, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons why the movie is so extraordinary. It's, it's, it's the work of obsessives. I've, I find that that is often true of the greatest uh, movies. They, they, they have been labors of love uh, for many years for, for people, and, and they're beyond uh, the usual uh, of, uh, kind of production that we talk about. Look so at that son of Saul bringing us together. That's a really powerful movie. When we, we can have the same number one spot after so many different kind of divergences and some other overlaps, but I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's says something about the movie in particular that, that it can have that sort of effect on so many different kinds of sensibilities. So and, those, uh, so Son of Saul, Mad Max, and Tangerine are the three we have in common as far as I can tell. Right, exactly. Carol made my top ten and you said it would be eleven, so... Right. I mean, the other, you know, another one I would have, I'm, well, I'm not going to list all the movies that didn't make it. <laughs> well, now I have to just keep checking in to see if you'll watch Horse Money, you know. I'm willing. I'm open. I'm, 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 I'm open-minded. That's worth something. <laughs> so next week, we have a lot to dig through because the Sundance lineup has started to come out, but we'll have even more... Uh, starting on Monday, there's another announcement coming along. So we'll be digging through all of that stuff. A whole new year of movies even before this one is over, plus more Oscar updates. So there's, there's a lot more to dig through before we can reassess where this race is at next time. See you next weekend. Bye-bye.